I know a lot of you probably aren't like this, but there are some of us that do things at the last minute. And so this morning at about 7.20, I clicked print on my computer to print my sermon notes for my 8 o'clock sermon, right? And so they did print, but only half of them printed before my, my printer told me, you have no more ink. We're not printing anymore. So we're like, oh, wow, this is awesome. Um, and, and it wasn't the better part of my sermon that it printed. It was like, you know, the less, least interesting part. So we came here. We're like, well, you know, the office moved here, so it's great. We're just going to be able to go to church, print in the office, right? We get here, and I'm like, okay, Father Steve, it was a little hectic, but we just got to get upstairs and print in the office. He's like, I don't have a key to the office. Only Father Jose, who's not coming today, and Janet have a key to the office. Janet's not here until like 10. Wow. So, uh, thank God I've got a wonderful wife who was, um, Jana drove over to Glendale, found a 24-7 printing place. I don't know why you would ever need one. Well, I know now why you would need one of those. And and printed my notes, and she delivered them just in time. I mean, the 8 o'clock, you get to the sermon quick. There's like no singing, right? Just, I mean, it was like five seconds before I went up there just to wing it. So if you are like me, maybe your day started in crisis mode. I don't know what happened with the kids this morning or whatever, or you got in a fight or whatever. Let's just take a moment to collect ourselves, say a word of prayer, and prepare ourselves to hear from the Lord. Almighty God, who lives eternally in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally communal. This morning you're calling us to join in your community, to share in the life of the Holy Trinity. So we prepare ourselves to hear from you. We prepare ourselves for a revelation from your word. We pray now that you would speak to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning is Trinity Sunday. And as I was saying earlier, we don't come to worship the doctrine of the Trinity. We've gathered to worship the Trinity itself. The God who is Father, Spirit, and Son. The God whose nature is relational. Over the last six months in our liturgical calendar, right? So we've been rehearsing the story of how Jesus came in Advent. Of how by the power of the Spirit, the Son went out teaching and healing. And how Jesus went to the cross, died for our sins, was raised again for us, how Jesus ascended to heaven, right? And then finally, last Sunday, we rehearsed the story of how the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit, uniting us into the Trinity, uniting us into the church. And so we just rehearsed for six months these stories. And each story, each Sunday had like an event, right? We have an event that corresponds And now we get to Trinity Sunday. Well, what's the event? Like, what's the story that goes with Trinity? So some of us, this seems like a sharp turn. It seems like we're going through these stories in the Bible, and then all of a sudden we have a celebration of 
the Trinity. What, what's the story behind it? But I think it's really so fitting that Trinity Sunday goes right at the end of this six months of rehearsing these stories. Because really, as we now look back on those stories, we see how the Trinity was always at work, right? It was always the Father and the Son and the Spirit that was working through this story. And now, this morning, on, on Trinity Sunday, the invitation is to us, is to share in the life of the Trinity. God exists in community. God is, in His very nature, love and relational. And God is extending that love and relationship to us. And so this morning, I want to focus on the Romans passage And I want to ask the question, what does it mean for us to share in the life of the Trinity? Specifically, what does it mean for us to share in the life of Trinity here and today in L.A.? And what we're going to see is that through this passage, we see how a shared life in the Trinity offers us, even promises us, first of all, true life-giving freedom. Secondly, it promises us a new identity. And then thirdly, it promises us the hope of glory despite our present suffering. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn with me. I know Father Jose always drills it into you to bring your Bibles with him. I'm always like, look, I got the pamphlet. There's a Bible on the seat in front of me and I have my iPhone. You know, you think I'm going to bring an extra one? But it just so turns out that, that this Sunday I will be referencing, you know, a few scriptures in that chapter outside. So it will be to your advantage if you brought that Bible with you. If not, I'm sure you'll, hopefully you'll be able to track, no matter what, hopefully you'll be able to track along, right, with us. So we're going to be reading out of Romans 8, beginning in the, in the 12th verse. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let's just break this down a little bit. Paul talks about being debtors, not to the flesh. So debtors, so we're not obligated. We don't owe the flesh anything. What exactly does Paul mean by flesh? Paul uses this word actually a lot in his letters. It can be confusing because sometimes he means something different by it, depending on the context. I want to talk about what Paul means by flesh, but before I get to that, I want to talk about something that's really important, is what Paul doesn't mean when he uses the word flesh. Or what he doesn't mean when he says, put to death the deeds of the body. And this is really important just for thinking and being and acting as a Christian in the world. So you ready for this? Paul doesn't mean that your soul is what's important and your body isn't important. And he doesn't mean that your soul is good and your body is bad. In fact, that very idea right there, which does seem to seep in sometimes in, as Christians uh, speak about their spirituality, is actually a, just an early Gnostic heresy in the church. How do we know that this is true? Well, we see earlier in the chapter, we see in verse 3, that Paul says that God sent his son 
in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is, Jesus took on a human body so that he could redeem all human bodies. He took on our flesh to redeem our flesh. God's plan is to redeem all of you. He doesn't just want your soul. Jesus came to redeem your soul, your body, every single part of you. God wants it. Secondly, we see further down in verse 11, Paul writes that the spirit that raised Jesus' body from the dead is the same spirit that is at work in us and will give life to our mortal bodies. The triune God in the person of Jesus took on human flesh and he married himself to our nature eternally. Christ had a human body, he was resurrected in body, and his body ascended to the Father, to the right hand of the Father, and he exists in our human flesh eternally. Christ shares in our humanity. So why is this important? Well, it's because we need to know that Christianity doesn't at all attempt to relevize the importance of the material world and the material bodies that you and I live in. Quite the opposite. God created the world, he created matter, and said that it was good. We, including our bodies, are made in his image. And God entered the material world, and although by his nature he was not material, he took on our material nature so that he could reorder all matter under his lordship. God cares about material existence. And this has implications for so many parts of our life. God cares about your body. God cares about nature. He cares about the environment. He cares more about the oil spill in Santa Barbara than you do. This is his world. He made it. He loves it. He created it. And he's in the business of redeeming it. So now we know what Paul doesn't mean by flesh. So let's talk about what Paul might be meaning here. It seems that in this case, when Paul talks about flesh, he seems to be referring to our fallen human nature. That is, our nature that is controlled by our fallen human desires. So how are we supposed to understand this? I think this relates to something that, at least from our perspective in America, that we might refer to as our quest for personal freedom. I think this whole thing about flesh, which is related to our desire to do what we want, when we want, how we want it, is related to our quest, what we think of as as Americans, is our quest for freedom. Now, I was listening not too long ago to this... uh, theologian talk, and he was saying that when you look at cultures, you can tell the religious beliefs and the commitments of a culture by what they're willing to die for. Just look at any culture, look at the things they're willing to die for, and that really is the true reflection of their religious belief. Well, what are we willing to die for in America? Well, Americans are willing to die for their freedom, right? 
Freedom seems to be about the only thing that we're willing to die for. If Americans were, for instance, willing to die for the gospel, we would see many more Americans living in Muslim countries, giving their lives to share the good news about Jesus' love, right? We would see that more often. But we really don't see that very often. But what we do see is a lot of Americans in Muslim countries giving their lives to share the message of American freedom, right? We see that. Our soldiers are overseas and have been for quite some time now. They're quite willing to lay down their lives for this message of personal freedom. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Flesh describes our desires, our desires to do what we want, when we want it, and this is whether good or bad. And Paul says, we're in debt not to the flesh. So he's saying, don't live enslaved to the flesh. And so how is it that we could, so you're saying like flesh is similar to the way we just always want to do what we want, our freedom. How then could we be enslaved to our own personal freedom? This really starting to sound strange. I'll show you this thing I have in my pocket. It's really interesting when you're wearing a robe and you got things in your pocket and then you go for the wrong pocket. So uh, I'm new at this, guys. I'm not a deacon yet. Next week, Jana and I will both be ordained to diaconate. It's going to be fun. I've got this thing called an iPhone. You might have seen one. Some of you might have something like this in, in your pockets, a smartphone or something like this. Now, this, this iPhone is just full of freedom, right? I mean, with this iPhone, I am free to check my email in all kinds of places. I'm free to uh, check my text messages, send text messages, make phone calls. I can check, um, you know, CNN. I can check Al Jazeera. I can check my Instagram, my Facebook, my Twitter. All this freedom that I have and my phone. And some of you will remember what it was like before we had phones like this not too long ago. And when we had a moment of what you might call downtime, some of the things we used to do with it, right? Like, Maybe we would just call our parents to catch up with them. Or maybe we would just take some time to sit on the porch or, or read a, a book. There were all kinds of things that we did before we had the freedom for this, right? So in actuality, you know, some of us were doing crazy things like even speaking to our spouses, you know? We were like sitting there in the room with them, looking at them in the eye and talking to them. It's just all kinds of things we were doing before these things came along, right? And so if you think about it, this is in one sense, a certain type of freedom, but we have exchanged a lot of other freedoms for this kind of freedom. And so what I'm saying is our country and our culture and the Enlightenment and all these kinds of things in modernity promises a certain type of freedom, a certain type of dream where we can be free from all obligation that we don't choose for ourselves, obligation to religious institutions, obligation to our our society, to our neighbors, even to our families. We can be free of all these obligations. But really, that kind of freedom, I think Paul would just say, that's just an expression of the flesh. That's just an expression of your desire to live life on your own terms. Instead, the life in the Trinity, the vision there, is that we're offered the Spirit that can lead us free us from our desires to live on our own terms 
and actually free us to be in community with the triune God. Now that's true freedom. And guess what happens when that spirit works in us and frees us to be in community with God? We become the kind of people that are able to be in community with, well, our families, our neighbors, our co-workers, the ones that are especially difficult to get along with, all these kinds of people, because we begin to die to our flesh, we begin to die to our selfishness, we're filled with the selfless love and selfless self-givingness of the God who sends his son to die for us, and that begins to transform us, that all of a sudden we're the type of people that can welcome others. We're, we're suddenly fit for community. And I, I hope that sounds like good news to you. Um, I, was just, I was just reading an article uh, published by some sociologists from Duke University, whatever, big name, important people, whatever. And the study was really disturbing because it was talking about how Americans are increasingly lonely. And the study showed that over one in 10 Americans say they have not even a single person that they can confide in. So for whatever important matter comes along in their life, one in 10 Americans feel that they don't even have a single person that they can talk about that important matter with. Half of the people said that they didn't have a person outside of their family with whom they can talk about an important matter with. And the majority of those people, they really only had one, and that was their spouse. Why are we living in a culture that is lacking in personal intimacy, lacking in trust, lacking in relationship? Well, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. But at least a factor of it seems to be our dedication to our own personal wills and desires. If I'm trying to live a life totally independent of you, where I don't have to depend on you and you're not dependent on me, how are we ever going to build the kind of trust, the kind of relationship that would even work to build these kind of depending relationships where I take a survey and I said, yeah, I've got lots of people that I could talk about important matters. I hope it's different here, you know. I really, I hope it would be really different about here at our church, that there would be, a lot of you could look around the room and say, oh no, I see a lot of people here with whom I can trust. In fact, just looking at the statistics, if we can, as a church body, be those types of people, we might really have something going for us. We, we might really have something to offer a lonely world that just feels like they have no one to talk to. It's like, no, we actually provide a safe community where people actually really do care and they do, uh, they're willing to take on a little bit less what they might call freedom to incorporate you into their lives. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you want life, you want true freedom, it comes from the spirit that is working in us to put to death our sinful self-seeking desires. Jesus is promising us true life and true freedom shared in the community of the Trinity. In sharing life with the Trinity, we are promised true life-giving freedom. Secondly, I want to go on to the next point, which is A life shared with the Trinity promises to give us a new identity. And we'll go back to verse 14. 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Before we lived life inside of the Trinity, we were under the impression that we belonged to ourselves. And now we discover that we don't belong to ourselves, that we belong to God. We belong to the Father. We are His children. And thus our identities and our loyalties have been completely shifted, have been completely reshaped. Our membership in the family of God is now what defines us more than any other determining factor for our identity, whether that be socioeconomic status or the ethnic group we belong to or our nationality or educational attainment or whatever success you might have attained in the industry. All of these identity markers are now relativized by this new identity, the identity that we are children of God. So I've got a strong identity, right? I feel like I really know who I am. So I'm from a city of culture. I'm I'm originally from New Orleans. We've got really amazing food, jambalaya, gumbo, fried shrimp po' boy. We've got jazz music. We've got more parties than you've ever seen. We've got Mardi Gras. I've got a strong sense of who I am. And just Within that culture, I'm a specific kind of person. I'm a Creole German, so I've got French and German in me, so I've got these ethnic roots that are part of who I am. I've been to the university. I studied in undergrad, right? That shaped who I was. I spent three years as a missionary in Berlin. That really shaped who I was. Now I'm a seminary-trained Anglican pastor, soon to be ordained to the diaconate. I'm going to be a deacon. These are pretty strong identity markers, right? I am a spouse. I've got a daughter. I'm a dad. These things can be very defining. But guess what, folks? It's all relative. The most defining thing in my life is that I am a son of God. I am a child of God. That has to be from where my identity flows. That has to be the center of my identity. The Holy Spirit of adoption is inside of us, confirming that we are children of God. If you ask me, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, I would tell you, a Christian is a person that knows that they are God's child. A Christian is a person whose entire identity is built around the fact that the Father sent the Son to die for them so that they could be adopted into God's family. A lot of you know my little daughter, Julia. And, you know, Julia's got a lot of fans. Uh, there's a lot of people here in this church that like her. Uh, I, I go with the stroller down my street, and there's people that are yelling out her name that I don't even know who they are. It's like, how do you know my baby, you know? Uh, she, you know, and of course, you know, the family back home and stuff, they, they love her. 
So, you know, there's a lot of people that love that baby, you know, but nobody loves her like I love her. I mean, I love that baby, you know. That's, that's my little baby. She turns one tomorrow, you know. So we're so proud of ourselves. We kept her alive for a whole year. It's like, this is great, right? It's amazing. We did it. So just got like 17 more. So uh, cheese them. But um, yeah, and so it would just be so crazy, you know. I mean, her mind's still developing, but it, in the next couple of years, at some point, if she just had some idea that I didn't love her, you know, that would be just so abs- absurd, you know. I mean, I just love her so much, you know. And it's just, it should just always be a part of her identity that no matter what, she knows she's got me, right? And that's just how it is. As a child of God, we should just always know that the God loved us so much that he sent his only son to die for us so that we could be adopted into his family. He gave us his spirit so that we could be reborn into his family and have the witness inside of us that tells us we are daughters and sons of God. Wow, all right. You know, just a quick reminder, that love stuff sounds really great, and it really is, and it's a privilege to be a child of God, but I just want to remind you real quick, along with the privilege, it's also a responsibility. Think about the royal family, you know, you got Prince William and Kate or whatever, you see them in the checkout line or whatever, or some of us uh, spent several hours of our lives watching all the seasons of Downton Abbey, you know, we think about these Royal families are this... They, it's a privilege to be royal, right? It's a privilege to be Prince William. It's a lot of fame that goes with that, a lot of money, I'm sure. But it's also a responsibility, right? You've got a lot of responsibility. And being, there's things that you have to show up to, and there's things that you have to do, and there's certain ways you have to act. And there's certain responsibility even that you have to the people, Right? That's just part of the reminder in it too, right? There's a responsibility along with that privilege, along with that identity. It shapes every part of our life, really, as who we are. So that's the second promise I wanted to talk about, the new identity that we receive as as, uh, sons and daughters of God. And finally, I want to talk about the the final promise of life in the Trinity is that we have the hope of glory in spite of our present suffering. Picking back up in verse 16, it is the very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if, in fact, we suffer with Him, so that we might also be glorified with Him. Okay, so I'm pretty sure what Paul is saying here is that as children of God, we can just do whatever we want to do, whatever feels good, because God wants to bless us, right? And he's also saying that we're never going to have to suffer because we're children of God. So that means we just don't have to, right? That's what he's saying, right? We can see it. It's just right there. Well, no, it's actually the opposite, right? 
of what he's saying. Sometimes we like to think that way, or sometimes we hear messages that make you think, oh, a child of God, you know, if you're really a child of God, you know, you never suffer. But no, actually, it turns out it's quite clear what Paul is saying. Being a daughter or being a son of God involves putting to death our flesh, and it involves suffering with Christ. How do we receive these hard words? In a culture that has no value, no place for suffering, how do we even begin to grapple with this? And then some of us were under the impression that Christ suffered so that we wouldn't have to. And now we're getting the bad news from Paul that Christ suffered so that we could suffer with him. You know, how do we, how do we, where do we start with this? I think a lot of us will find one way or another to maybe just ignore these types of passages when we're reading through the Bible. Some of us, when we see the word suffer, we automatically think of Christians living in places, and rightly so, like North Korea or Somalia or Iraq, where they're facing violent persecution, and we think, yeah, they're suffering and, and we're not. But actually, I think that Christ calls us to suffer in very small, what you might think of subtle ways, every day, It's always a little call, suffer a little here, suffer a little there, if we're listening. I think think what happens is when we yield to these small calls to suffer, these little decisions to yield to the call of suffering in our daily lives, these are the things that might shape us and prepare us So if ever we were in that kind of situation where we might be called upon to suffer in a more severe way than what we have known, it's these little everyday willingness to suffer that will shape us. And I don't know what these little everyday callings towards suffering look in your life. Some of you, when you made the decision to follow Christ and you left your old life behind and made a new decision to live for, for Jesus, there, there might have been relationships that you suffered the loss of. There might have been family members or close friends that no longer wanted to be in relationship with you or maybe not on the same level now that you started to follow Christ. I don't know, maybe Christ called you to a new level of integrity at your job. And maybe that cost you a position or maybe a promotion. I don't know the ways that Christ has and the ways that Christ will call you to suffer. I can tell you that as pastors, and especially, maybe especially church planters, there's a good bit of suffering involved, you know? Ask Father Jose if he's ever suffered, you know? I think I heard him say, sometimes the sheep bite. It's true, they do bite, you know? They, uh, but no matter what it is in your particular calling in the, in the area of life, wherever God has you. There's ways. But I think for American Christians, the idea of suffering with Christ, like all forms of suffering, it just seems so unnecessary. We're so 
we're more likely just to ignore this or keep reading it as an addendum to the passage or somehow it's not central to what Paul is talking about. However, when we glance at the text, we look in verse 17. Paul's talking about being co-heirs with Christ if, in fact, we suffer with him so that we might be glorified with him. If we were all here staring at a Greek Bible, we would see that Paul uses a word that's like co-heirs, co-sufferers, co-glorified. It's like this little co with the dash. And most of us are all about the co-heir part, right? And we're all about the co-glorified part. But what about that co-suffering that Paul slips in the middle? What about that? Well, what might sound initially like bad news is actually really latent with two really amazing promises. I just want to look at those. The first promise is that our suffering can be with Christ. That we might get to suffer with Christ. That is, in this Spirit-led life, on our journey toward true freedom and, and putting our, our flesh to the death, we will certainly endure suffering. As the Spirit of Christ works in us to transform us into the image of Christ, the world will, like it did to Christ, want to impose its suffering on us. However, when we do suffer, we don't suffer alone. Christ is joined with us. We are suffering with Christ And Christ is suffering with us. And this can transform our perspective of our current suffering. What I'm telling you is that as you suffer, suffering isn't the absence of God. But in your suffering, it's literally the presence of Christ that suffers with us. So as you suffer, don't say, God, why have you abandoned me? We must instead say, Christ, you're here with me. And that really has the potential to change the way we view our suffering. So the first promise is that our suffering can be with Christ. And the second promise is, of course, that if we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. Paul describes how Jesus was glorified after his sufferings. Philippians 2, he says, Christ himself, Christ humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, even the names of the politicians that crucified him, even the names of the religious leaders that said put him to death God gave him a name above those names so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth. Christ suffered, but his reward was to be glorified. What about the suffering that we endure? Well, our perspective on our suffering can be transformed as we recognize that despite our suffering and actually even through our suffering, we are promised to be co-heirs and glorified with Christ. We're promised the same fate as Christ. We get to suffer with him 
but also we get to share in his glorious inheritance. And as Christians, when we suffer, we don't need to despair because we are promised the hope of glory. So the invitation is open to us this morning. The Trinity is inviting us to share in its life and promising us true life-giving freedom and a new identity as daughters and sons of God. And it is promising us the hope of glory despite our present situation. And what an amazing thing it is to be in a relationship with the triune God. Amen.